Well, I'm sure uh, this Chuseok is a busy time in your household, wherever you happen to be. Maybe it's difficult to uh, get smartphone charging space. Imagine if you were just wearing clothes that could charge your smartphone or an autonomous drone delivery of gifts for Chuseok. Uh, delivery is actually becoming a reality at a Swiss hospital or in fact hospitals. We'll hear more about that in a moment. But first... The US and Russia coming together to build something like a moon base. Mark Zastro, science journalist, here with our latest science and technology. And happy Chusok to you. Happy Chusok to you, Alex. Great to be here. Um, yeah, and I guess it has a different atmosphere for all our segments to a certain extent. But uh, I don't know when it comes to festivals on the moon, how much they're in touch with what's happening down here on Earth. Yeah, hard to say. But uh, judging by the news today, maybe they're a little bit more in touch than they might otherwise be. Well, they already have the opportunity to do many things in space. But what about when you've got US and Russia with certain rivalries there uh, simmering along Mm -hmm. politically coming together to build a space station at the moon? Is that really happening? That is the intention, the stated intention of both the U.S. and the Russian space agencies as of last week. Uh, I would say it's a, it's a pretty exciting announcement for uh, anyone who is interested in human spaceflight. Some of the best news, I would say, for human spaceflight in a long time. So under this agreement, which they announced uh, together in joint statements, uh, they say they want to work towards a space station that will orbit the moon called the Deep Space Gateway, and that work will start, or should start, sometime in the mid-2020s. Now, the intention is for this space station uh, to be a platform not just to explore the moon and to be near the moon, but also to serve as a launching off point for exploring the rest of the solar system, which makes sense because the hardest part of, say, getting to a place like Mars or even to Jupiter uh, or somewhere else out there is just to get off Earth in the first place. That's the, the most dangerous part and the most expensive part. So lunar orbit is actually a really great place to park a lot of equipment uh, if you are planning to go even further out into the solar system. How much have they actually agreed on at this point? Right. So right now, the space station itself is still basically in the concept stage. Uh, NASA has been exploring something like this for a while on their own, and they've been soliciting proposals from uh, various companies and manufacturers. So this 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 agreement is basically an intent to explore. It's not yet a binding contract. So it's a little hard to know at this point how serious things have become so far. Uh, but it's kind of interesting because they both put out statements, different statements actually. Uh, and the NASA one was relatively measured. It was kind of bland, didn't have very many details. Uh, but the Russian one had pl- a lot of details, actually. It said that they had already been talking about splitting up the construction work of, of the space station with alternating launches uh, between NASA and Roscosmos, which is the name of the Russian space agency. And the Russian space agency also said they had agreed that Russia would develop the life support systems for the space station and the docking mechanisms. So that's like the, the airlocks and the ports that the visiting spacecraft use to dock with the space station. And that's actually a, a really important step because right now on the International Space Station, the Russian and the NASA docking ports are not compatible with each other. Actually, NASA had to build an adapter for its docking ports on the ISS so that SpaceX and other commercial space companies could dock at them. So, you know, this kind of 
agreement about docking standards. Maybe it sounds a little bit boring, but it's actually really important because obviously then spacecraft don't have to go around carrying dongles so that they can plug themselves in. Uh, so it, there's still obviously a long ways to go. It, this is uh, an agreement between the space agencies, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily guarantee funding from the actual governments to pay for it. And of course, that's going to be uh, the biggest sticking point. Well, it seems so often we've gotten our hopes up for human space exploration. Um, but then when NASA gets close, you know, there's some problem there. And, and, and do we need a, a true space race to spur us on? I think that's a really good point. And a lot of people would would say that. And a lot of people are excited now that we finally seem to be entering a new space race. Now that you know other countries besides just the US and Russia are entering the game like China. And of course, also because there are so many private companies that are developing uh, launch vehicles so quickly. Uh, but frankly, I personally think that there's something really poetic, uh, or something really beautiful about the fact that you know, the first time humanity went to the moon, maybe it was a race. It was a race between the U.S. and Russia. But now that we're going back the second time, uh, we're going together in a collaboration between the U.S. and Russia. Yeah, that's a nice point. And it's also, to be more realistic and practical, it's probable that neither country really is in a position to do this alone. It's just too big of a project. And they're hoping, on, they're hoping to bring on even more partner nations which would be similar to how the International Space Station worked. Uh, and, and that really was a great success. Uh, you know, a lot of people do argue you need this incentive of competition. But if you look at the International Space Station, I really think that's one of the most underrated space missions of all time. Uh, it, it maybe sounds a little bit boring because it never leaves Earth orbit. And it's been around for so long that I think a lot of us kind of take it for granted which I don't think we should, because the amount of technology that went into building a habitat that can remain in space, that can remain, uh, that can keep humans alive inside uh, for as long as it has, that that's just an incredible accomplishment for for humanity. And the deep space gateway, I'm really excited about personally because I think it may have the potential to keep that legacy going and extend it. Well, let's uh, shift a little closer to home with our next two stories. A research team here in Korea last week announced they've developed wearable power generators. So these run off sunlight and mean we could potentially charge our smartphones with the clothes we're wearing. That's right. So at some point in the future, that is the hope. Uh, this is a device that it actually kind of sounds a little bit like a wearable solar panel. But whereas the solar panel uh, absorbs sunlight and uses the material to uh the, the quantum mechanics of the material, basically, to, to generate electricity. Uh, this is actually using a different principle just based on the temperature difference. So this team of researchers at KIST and UNIST uh, here in Korea started with a kind of a flexible material called bismuth telluride. And it's been previously used to make what are called thermoelectric generators. And in the past, these would operate off of your body heat. So you would wear it and it would harvest your body heat and convert it to electricity. But the thing is, uh, it turns out your body heat isn't so efficient because it's only able to heat the material up by about two degrees Celsius when you wear it. But now in a study published in the journal Nano Energy, this local team was able to improve on that a lot by painting dark alternating stripes on the material. 
and they absorb sunlight really well. And so if they're out in sunlight, these stripes are actually able to heat up by about 20 degrees Celsius. So it's much more powerful than previous attempts to make these kinds of uh, you know, wearable phone chargers. But you've suggested we're some way off before people can uh, charge their phones with their special hanbok. That's right. At this moment, the, uh, the one that they've demonstrated, it's only about one one thousandth as powerful as your average phone charger. So it's still kind of a, a proof of concept. I'm also not too comfortable, Mark. I don't know. Is this founded on anything or am I just being silly when I say I'm not comfortable with the idea of having a mini power generator on my body all the time? Well, you know, you could argue that it's actually a bit of a safer scenario than to have a battery because the battery is charging all that energy uh, in the sense that it's, it's storing it. And of course, it, it could be released. And we see what happens sometimes when batteries do release their energy explosively right. in an uncontrolled way. So, so this might be a safer option. Um, we're going to need to hear more about that going forward. Uh, what about this, though? Another potential safety concern that may actually be better than what we've got now, autonomous drone delivery. It's going to be a reality next month. They're not going to be delivering packages to your doorstep. This isn't going to be entering the online shopping sphere just yet, but uh, rather it's going to be something much more valuable, potentially. That's right. So hospitals in Switzerland are getting ready to have a network of autonomous drones that will ferry blood samples and other really urgent lab samples and uh, urgently needed diagnostics. So a California company called Matternet has designed these drones and also their landing pads, which are acting kind of as like really futuristic mailboxes in this scenario. So basically you take a lab sample, you drop it into a port, and then the drone automatically loads the package. You use a a smartphone app to tell it where to go, which hospital to take this test to. It flies off there and then it lands on another pad. And then the recipient scans it uh, with a QR code so that they can retrieve the package. It makes a lot of sense, these medical tests... Yeah, they're mostly small packages, the kind of thing you'd want to deliver urgently. Have they actually tested it thoroughly, though? Uh, Yes. So they actually have done a pilot program right now uh, at two hospitals in Switzerland. And now they've just gotten regulatory approval to fly the drones over densely populated areas. So they want to expand this now into a real network. They plan to do that uh, in early 2018. And so when they do, they claim that this is going to be the first really truly commercial operational drone delivery network. It's, it won't be in the testing phase. It'll be fully deployed. Uh, and it, it's also something that it doesn't just make sense for sort of these dense urban areas. It could also be used as a real lifesaver, literally, in rural areas where you need to deliver maybe not uh, tests, but medical supplies even very quickly. Yeah, so there's and an aid and all sorts of things. Exactly. There's a company uh, called Zipline that plans to test a similar drone network in Tanzania starting next year to deliver things like emergency vaccines and drugs. Thank you very much. Thank you, Alex. Always interesting, sometimes very promising as well, our science and technology segment with Mark Astro.